and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of One for the Road. And if you've just completed dry January and you're looking to carry on into February and you need some more support, head over to my website at soberdave.co.uk. So my guest today is Emily Horwood, and she grew up in the noughties amongst the parties of the Primrose Hill set and the carnage of Camden Town. The drink and the drug scene was in full swing, and Emily's relationship with alcohol was off and running. As the people around her start to grow up and have families, Emily continued to do what she knew, searching for the next high, travelling, partying and jumping from job to job. And her life changed when she found herself in an abusive relationship fueled by alcohol. After seeking help to leave, Emily found that she was now drinking to escape her reality more than ever. Emily's story describes the grey out years from her mid-twenties and thirties where she talks about having children as a way to fix herself and she shares the darkest times and how she finally hit her emotional rock bottom. I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So hello Emily, welcome to my podcast One for the Road. It's a joy to have you on as a guest today. How are you? Hi Dave. Oh, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you. And I mean thank you because uh, you're part of my story more than you know. So yeah, it's oh, brilliant. Oh, that's to lovely to hear. Thank you for that. And uh, I'm looking out the window now and it's absolutely torrential rain. So I've got my big fleece on and I'm all ready to sit back and listen to your story. And as all my listeners know, we always wind it back to the beginning. So if you don't mind sharing what it was like for you growing up, where you grew up and uh, go from there. Yes, thank you. Well, so I grew up in northwest London in a place called Belsize Park, which was Lovely, um, but it was sort of sandwiched between Hampstead, the very posh Hampstead, and the not-so-posh Camden Town. So um, there was always a little bit of kind of which way do we go, up the hill or down the hill? It was kind of, um, yeah, my dad never wanted us to go down to Camden, and obviously that's where we that's where we ran to. Um, but when we were young, I've got two sisters. We're all very close in age. And um, when I was about, I don't know, about 14, we started to be introduced to alcohol, I guess. I mean, there was alcohol in my house growing up, but neither my parents were alcoholics or what I would consider to be an alcoholic. Um, they There was wine in the house all the time. Um, my mum would have a glass of wine when she was in the garden, when she was in the bath, when she was cooking dinner. Um, but it never seemed to, it was just normal. It was normal in my house. 
to have alcohol on a daily basis from my parents, you know, um, but nothing that I would consider excessive. Um, anyway, so yeah, so I got to the age of about 14 and I'm the youngest of my two sisters. So it was always a case of kind of keeping up. Um, and we were sort of introduced to kind of the group of boys that would hang around the skateboard park and they were a bit older. And then I remember my first, my very first drink was a bottle of Merry Downsider. I think it was about 98p. Um, but it was a full bottle. And obviously I was like, right, you know, that's my bottle. I'm going to drink it. Um, and I did. And it was horrific. And, um, you know, we sat out, sat outside in the bus stop and drank our cider and then were sick. <laughs> um, and then we kind of, you know, it wasn't a regular thing. Um, but then we'd have, we, I remember Malibu and I remember drinking Malibu and Southern Comfort. I'm sure it was combined. And as you can imagine, I remember that as my first epic hangover. I was so ill. Um, and I was, I wasn't really into it. I didn't, I didn't feel, I, I, it wasn't an instant thing for me. I didn't feel like, right, I have found my medicine. I found my tonic. This is great. I just kind of did what I thought everyone did, which is, you know, do what the cool kids are doing. Um, then kind of, you know, I, I continued on through my teenage years, alcohol not factoring into my story very much. Again, if I went out when I was sort of 17, 18, I'd have, I remember my drink of choice was Jack Daniels and, and lots of Coke. It would be like a single shot of Jack Daniels and a lot of Coke because I actually didn't like it. I didn't like the taste of it. Um, but I did it because I thought that's what people did as you grew up, you know. Um, and, and then basically I, I went, I went to Australia. My older sister was traveling and, and her and her friend were there and they were like, Oh, you can't order Jack Daniels and Coke. It's much easier to order wine because then we can share it, you know. And I literally forced myself into liking wine. Um, I hated the taste initially and I remember that vividly, but, um, but that's where it all began, really. My, my ultimate love affair with wine. Um, so I then sort of in the like, I mean, the noughties, naughty by nature, literally growing up in Camden and Primrose Hill. It was all of that. It was the set, you know, I mean, and I was thinking about it earlier and the majority of that old Primrose Hill set, they're either not here anymore or they're in that they're sober. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're actively sober. Um, but at the time, that's what I was around. Um, there was a pub called The Steels on Haverstock Hill, which was a two minute walk from my house, which honestly was utter carnage. I mean, there was a room upstairs that all the sort of oasis and all of, all of, you know, that gang used to go up there. I remember vividly sitting in that pub and there was lines of cocaine, MDMA. It was, it was a free for all and it was, publicly out there and and it was almost like they that i mean because obviously drugs were part of my story cocaine was part of my story that if you weren't selling them you were taking them it was everywhere or it seemed to be everywhere for me that's you know i that's the people that i was around and also it made me think about like culturally or the society that we were growing up in then in the noughties and i know that you've you know other people have shared this 
there was the word there was even even the big breakfast they they presented it like they would half cut you know mm. it was all it was that culture tfi friday was massive in fact the landlord who you know chris evans had he he his set was a pub and they had a bar in there um and the landlord of the bar was actually the landlord of the pub over the road from me that i used to work in so i i went to tfi friday and again carnage but it was actively encouraged you know alcohol cocaine whatever you could get your hands on you know and so that to me was completely and utterly normal i didn't know any different that's what everyone was doing um and then eventually i kind of i had to you know i had to start working and i was sort of in my mid or sort of early mid 20s um and i started to teach i was a primary school teacher not because i'd had this burning desire forever to teach but kind of i i was lost and i didn't know what to do and i actually remember looking through the kind of university prospectus and flicking through it and thinking oh that'll suit me i can do that and a lot of that was you know pleasing my dad really doing something that i thought he would be proud of me doing um but the drinking continued the circle that i was mixing in was there um and then having spent a lot of time thinking about my relationship with alcohol i've i kind of pinpointed a a period of my life where it really took a different turn um and in my sort of early 20s i you know it's related to a man i met a man and and it was and i ha- i was in a very abusive relationship i'd never been brought up around that before so it was a real shocker to me but when there's alcohol involved and when there's class a's involved and it's relentless i just the lines were so blurred i mean they were more than blurred i i i had lost sense of what my core values were what what i'd had no moral compass i was you know and and i feel like that for me was a real real turning point um so kind of i got out of that eventually thank god and um but that's when i my drinking wasn't fun anymore my drinking was a necessity for me um and i sort of bumbled along dave for like for years in my my sort of late 20s i'd say between 25 and 35 it's it's it wasn't a blackout it was like a gray murky bumping along the bottom i have very few memories certainly not very good ones you know that i can kind of look back on during that time um it is just i just feel like it's such a sneaky insidious addiction that it it before you know it it's there you know but you can't see it coming or i certainly couldn't um and then i thought to myself right i'll um i know what will fix me i'll have some babies so i um <laughs> proceeded to um uh have my first child my daughter in my sort of i'd say i was about yeah 34 and then i had my son 18 months later so it was very quick um and it didn't fix me 
um, it didn't fix me at all. If anything, that again was a big turning point because it really highlighted to me how different I was to those around me. You know, I was full of like compare and despair. I would look at these mums with their young children and it looked like they had it all together. And, um, and I like, you know, behind the facade in the playground, I literally felt like I, I was falling apart and I, and I, and it was like a dirty secret. Um, you know, I was drinking daily. Um, and also they were young when I split up from their dad. So I was a single parent. So I was like, amazing. I've now got the best excuse in the world to be miserable and to drink every day. I'll, you know, I mean, I didn't need any excuse. If it was sunny, if it was Tuesday, if it was raining, any excuse for me to have a drink. But I had no one, you know, I, I no one was watching me and um, I wasn't going out anymore because I couldn't go out. So I would, it, it was almost easier for me to drink. Um, I'd sit on my sofa and, and I would, you know, I'd be drinking. In the end, I'd be drinking two and a half, sometimes three bottles of wine a night. Um, and I would, you know, get myself to bed. Um, but there were times when I, yeah, I would wake up in the morning and I wouldn't remember putting them to bed, Dave. And that's really scary. And it's something that I'm not proud of saying. And it's something that I find difficult. It wasn't a regular occurrence, but it happened. And, you know, so I kept having these moments of like, this is not right. Um, and I just felt, yeah, I just felt stuck. I felt alone. I felt dissatisfied. I felt utterly joyless. I couldn't remember what it felt like to feel joy. Um, and, you know, and so it went on until, until I was 42 and I, um, and I just thought that uh, something's got to change because, and that this was, this was lockdown two we were just going into and I drank through lockdown one. And after that, I was like, Oh my God, I cannot. Uh, it's excuse my French shit or bust. I cannot go into lockdown two and continue to drink the way I'm going to drink because something really really bad is going to happen you know and it's that thing it's like that elevator we can get off on any floor and I didn't want to go down the lift anymore mm. um I so, the, the lockdown has got a lot to answer to for a lot of people now I mean people you know yeah. what you said was really poignant actually when you said it it was no longer enjoyable it became a necessity and it for me it was almost like Oh, what have I got for dinner tonight? What am I drinking tonight? It was the same kind of narrative for me for years and years and years. It was a, a no brainer for me to drink every single day. Um, luckily I was sober in lockdown. Um, I have no idea how I'd have managed that because it, for me, it would have been getting the quantity into the house. That would have been my issue. Do you know what I mean? Because I was hiding a lot of it. Um, you know, and getting away with that. Um, but it's a process, isn't it? So probably through your 30s, you 
some people talk about spontaneous sobriety and they go, do you know what? I reached a point and I just stopped and that is it. But it isn't that. We mm. question ourselves all the time, don't we? But a lot of the time we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go to. We we can't do it on willpower alone as well. You know, Totally. And I had, I had a good few years of knowing that this is not normal, that my relationship with alcohol is not normal. Did it stop me from doing it? No. I, you know, again, it's that, you know, I had that perception, well, I can't be an alcoholic because I don't drink bottles of vodka and I don't sit on a park bench. You know, I'm functioning. I get my kids to school in the morning. Nothing, nothing massive has been taken away from me. I haven't lost anything tangible. But for me, it was what you couldn't see. You know, it's like, yeah, I had bruises and scars from falling out of pubs and everything else, but it was the scars that I, from the, from the insides. Mm. And that's what's almost harder to find. And that's mm. what made it harder for me to reach that point of going, I need to stop and I need help. I need to mm. find help how to stop, you know. And it's, well, that's interesting how you frame that as well, because, uh, I was watching a Beckham documentary the other day about what he had to deal with um, when he got sent off in a World Cup qualifying thing. And and the shame he, honestly, what he endured for years. And Ferdinand said in the interview that, you know, in those days we never talked about mental health, right, especially in men. Yeah. And it made me realise, actually, these days, unless you're part of a sober community, we don't talk about the mental health around alcohol, do we? Um, no. Because of the shame involved, you know, like what you said about putting their kids to bed. There'd be thousands of women or men here hearing that going, yeah, I've done that, but who could I tell or talk to about that, you know? And and all this builds up, your mental health declines. Alcohol's a depressant anyway, so you, your anxiety is sky high. You're not sleeping properly. You're depressed. Um, oh. everything's murky, isn't it? It was just, I mean, the, the, you know, just getting the kids into the playground, that paranoia. I used to almost go in disguise. You know, I'd have the glasses on, the beanie on. I wouldn't get any eye contact with anyone because I felt like I was wearing some sort of placard or I had it tattooed on my forehead that you've drunk three bottles of wine last night. Like, look at the state of you. Look at your life. I don't know whether people thought that of me, but it was it like it seeped out of my pores. The mm. shame around it. Mm. It was horrific, you know. And those, you know, that like the 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 anxiety, you know, that seeped into everything I did. Uh, my, you know, my behaviors and my choices. I was just, I was so out of sorts because of the alcohol over years and years that. And it's only now that I'm sober that I realise how many areas of my life it impacted, you know. Yeah, so I got to like to that stage of I was I was desperate, really. And all I knew, obviously, from growing up in the area that I did, I did know people that were in recovery that were sober, um, but I wasn't in contact with any of them. Um, and I there was a, an amazing man that I know who's over 20 years sober. I haven't spoken to the guy in 20 years at this point, right? And he, I'm on my social media and he's the only person 
that I know of that I could possibly message and say, I think I need some help. Yeah. And I messaged him. And um, and honestly, within half an hour, he messaged me back. We hadn't spoken in 20 years. And then he rang me and we had an hour conversation. And he he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous. So he said, let me take you to a meeting. Um, and that's what I did. And it was weird because at that point I was like, I was just willing. I was so desperate. I was just, I, I didn't think that anything was going to work. Like I, I, I was so stuck that I was like, you know what? It was like blind faith. Let's go. I'll try anything, you know? Um, and so, so I, so I went and, um, and I chose that route. I, well, because it was the only one that was presented to me. Cause at that mm. time again, I hadn't delved into the sober community. I, you know, I wasn't aware of what was out there. It's like, you only know what you know. Um, and I went and I, I loved it. I never felt, I never felt out of place, you know. And someone said to me at the very beginning, listen for the similarities and not the differences. And that has changed my life because again, you know, we've all got different stories. We're all from different places. And it's very easy for my addict head to hook into the differences and go, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not mm. that far down the elevator yet. Mm. So this isn't for me. I'm okay. Mm. Um, and actually in that first year of my sobriety, there was a lot of that going on in my head. And I also feel like I never fully owned the kind of new version of myself in that first year of sobriety. And I felt like I was grieving me. Mm. It was so weird. It was like I've had like 30 years as this identity of Emily. You know, I was the one that was there until the end. I was the one that bought the most alcohol. I, you know, I encouraged everyone to drink. I enabled people to drink. Um, and And that was gone. And I was like, well, who am I now? And mm. I really struggled with that, you know. That's the um, emotional sobriety bit, though, isn't it? Like, it, yeah, it's such an important subject, honestly. And I always say to people, like, it's like learning to drive, right? The first mm. bit is understanding the mechanics of it. So it's dealing with not drinking, going out with your friends, and you know all the mechanics of it. But yeah. you get to a certain point in your your sober adventure yeah i tried not to say journey then (laughs) (laughs) right and you get to a point and that can happen from six months to 18 months right depending on who you are and you start and what you what you say as well about the grieving you're grieving the loss as well because you're in a codependent relationship right so even you know alcohol grooms you from the beginning, didn't it? It's mm-hmm. got a cunning plan. So in the beginning, it's like a narcissist. I always say it like this, you know, they're really lovely and kind and buy your flowers and tell you look beautiful and they wear the white shirt and the flipping aftershave and that. Gradually, they chip away, chip away, chip away and then start mm-hmm. controlling you, right? And even some narcissistic relationships that people leave, there's still that that bond and it can take a long time to actually adapt to a life without that thing in your life. And that's not alcohol because let's face it, it actually does the job. It says on the tin, 
you know, the overthinkers, the warriors, mm-hmm. you know, turn the volume down, good day, bad day, any day. Um, so mm-hmm. to take that out, right, takes a lot of getting used to. And and yes. we have to be honest with it. It's not shameful to say that. It's got yeah. its claws in you, isn't it? Totally. And that is something that I am learning and continuing to learn and that I have to maintain and keep on top of. And like you say, for me personally, that is the biggest piece of my sobriety is basically the maintenance. You know, I had like a hole in my soul and for 30 years I filled it up with alcohol, right? And if it wasn't alcohol, it was spending, you know, shopping. It was men. It was like seeking attention, you know, it was gratification in whatever way I could find. And when I removed the alcohol, I've still got the hole in the soul, but I'm not filling it up. So I, you know, so in that first year, I was like, yay, amazing. I'm not drinking. But there was something going on in me and I wasn't. I'm not going to say fixed, but, you know, there was so much more to uncover and I didn't reach the point of, you know, I didn't unearth it all. So ultimately, after 15 months, I got distracted by a man. Two weeks later, I had a glass of red wine in my hand. A week later, I had a bottle of wine in my hand. And then within, within three weeks, I was back to drinking two bottles a night. And um, and for the record, it was so much worse. It was honestly, it was like if you've got a belly full of wine and a head full of sobriety, it is painful because you can't unsee. I couldn't unsee that first 15 months I got. And mm. I had all that knowledge and all the people that I'd been around and heard, you know, so the worst bit about it, Dave, was that it wasn't even working anymore. So I was drinking, but I wasn't getting the fun. I wasn't getting the buzz. I was just getting the consequences. So now I really was in trouble because I was like, oh, my God. Like, So I've got this hole in the soul. So I'm back to drinking and it's not working. Yeah. What do I do now? Yeah. yeah. You've gone back to the narcissistic ex. You've had 15 months apart and you've got yourself yeah. a little flat and yeah. um, changed area and all of a sudden you're back there and within a week you're picking the pants up off the floor and there's a yeah. bowl full of washing up. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. But you've had Absolutely. the experience of 15 months apart on top, yeah. which is... <laughs> I've had the taster of, of yeah. the freedom yeah. of what life can be like. And, it, and that's why it was 10 times worse and my life, shrank like I I describe it like you know a balloon in a town hall after a party three weeks later and it's all shriveled up in the corner and it's just I felt claustrophobic in my own life it was like I couldn't escape it it was scary and thankfully I mean you know I was out and about drinking for another six months before I was like do you know what I cannot I cannot carry on because it was like, here's what you could have won, Emily, and here's where you are now. And I'd have to be the biggest fool not to realize, you know. And thankfully, because I'd stopped and I'd made some connections first time round, I had some tools. 
I had some tools and I had people to reach out, you know. Um, and the difference is second time round, which was December last year, is that I totally outed myself. I was like, I know, I know what's, what works. I am going to own it. I'm going to live in it. I'm going to, you know, really own my sobriety and the new person that I'm becoming and reframe it into like an adventure, like a rebirth, not this thing of grieving and mourning the old one, you know, but like I really embraced it and I connected, you know, and that's why I said, you know, about you at the beginning that your January lives, oh my God, they were a lifesaver for me. And, you know, and that there's like, I have immense gratitude. And I mean that because it's even like, you know, you're there doing it, but there are people there that might not be commenting or liking, but they're there and they're listening. And just hearing the stories of people that you were, you know, talking to just made me feel less alone and made me feel like the madness in my head wasn't just in my head. Mm. And it showed me that not only is it possible, but look at all the things that can happen in life, you know. So I totally dived into it this time around. I went podcast crazy. I mean, I'm still obsessed with them. I went into all the books. I joined the Facebook groups. Um, You know, I, I... feel the fear and do it anyway even like so the socials I made the effort to to get involved a little bit because I I wanted that weird kind of stigma that I'd had around it it you know you surround you know you are the people you surround yourself with and I wanted to be part of and not feel alone and so far so good you know I I'm taking the action and um and yeah, I was 10 months last week. So I'm over. That's fantastic. That. Can I just go back to when you met this person? Um, and you said within a few days we were drinking again. Did this, this guy drink? Yes, he did. Right. So maybe there's a lesson there for people hearing this. It's like you have to stay in your lane, don't you? You have to commit to your sobriety. Um, and that's a whole new subject is relationships and drinking. You know, a lot of people come to me and they say, I've decided to um, stop drinking. Um, my partner carries on to drink and he shames me or she shames me for still drinking. And there are so many obstacles you have to face. So in the dating world it's as well, massive. it's making it clear from the start that you don't drink. Completely. And also I... That after that first year or so of sobriety, when I still what didn't you know I wasn't owning it. When it came to dating, I was like, "Oh God, do I say I'm an alcoholic? Do I say I'm choosing not to drink? Like, is that is that endearing, attractive? Is that you know a turn off?" And also that thing of like, "What do I now have to just?" look for people that don't drink alcohol and then obviously in my head I'm like well this is nonsense and I wasn't that bad and maybe I could moderate and then I you know and then I met this guy who was a drinker and then the head you know the addict in me was like well what about that like first time you got dancing 
you know, what about that nice kind of, you know, weekend away and you're in a cozy hotel bar? I'm sure I could just have one. Like I could try and just have one. Mm. And, you know, and yeah, he had alcohol around me and he did sort of say, oh, do, do you mind? And I said, no, I don't mind. No, because I didn't want to feel like a freak. Like, you know, I just, I, I wanted to feel like, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm strong in where I stand. It's, you know, it's no problem. But you're right about staying in your lane. And that's the piece that inside me, I was resentful towards that. Mm. I was like, well, what? I've stopped drinking and now I've got to stay in a lane and not go to places and not be around people. Well, that's not fair. I feel like I'm losing, not winning. Yeah, but you know what you said about the first time round and the second time round? The second time round, you were match fit and ready to go, right? And this is what I say to people with my coaching. It's like, you have to be committed to yourself and not to others, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be sure about what you want. So when you were saying about what do I say, there's 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 an element there of feeling embarrassed, maybe. You know, I spoke to Danny Bennett on this podcast and he he was on that show First Dates. Mm -hmm. And it was a big thing that he told the woman that he wasn't drinking and she went, oh, right. And she actually didn't pick him because Mm -hmm. she thought he was an addict or there's something wrong and blah, 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 which is understandable. She didn't have the education right. But the other thing you said as well is like, what do I say about – well, I'm trying not to drink. And I always say, just say, I don't drink. And, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a statement there. And what I think we, a lot of us do, we tiptoe around people because we feel awkward, because we're almost in the minority, right? And I always say, just sit with yourself and think, right, this is my life. This is what I want for me. I want to be a better version of myself, Right. And those who want to come along on this journey with me and support me are welcome. Those who don't are not welcome. And then you create your own boundaries there. And you, but the main thing is you know where you are as a person and you've got your own structure there to how you want to move forward. Well, that is, you're so right. But the problem at that point for me was because what you're talking about is all of that emotional sobriety is boundaries, you know, is is like I I had no idea what things like that were and so that's what at that point in my life it wasn't his fault you know I I hadn't I hadn't learned to love Emily no and and this that's the main difference between last time and this time round is that I am I am in a relationship a new relationship and I'm in a new relationship with myself. Yeah. That's who I'm in a relationship with now. Whereas before, I was still looking for the external to fill me up. It what couldn't have been a drink. Oh, I know. So now it will be a man. And that will fill me up. And now, this time around, I fully realize that. And it's it's the first time in my life that I have gifted myself this time, you know, I'm not putting a time frame on it, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working through things. I am really nurturing and starting to love Emily because only then, like you say, you know, meeting someone and, and having that conversation about why I don't drink, you know, 
it like it just it's not it wouldn't even be a problem you know but that's that's not on my remit at the moment but it was it's exactly that is that I wasn't emotionally sober I didn't have boundaries because I didn't understand why people did I've never had a boundary in my life Mm. so I didn't understand that they can they empower you and and build your self-worth and your self-esteem you know, which then impacts everything else. I had no idea about that stuff. All I knew was that I wasn't picking up a glass of wine. Yeah, the practical side. And this is, you know, this is what I say about the emotional sobriety because we, we don't know how to have boundaries because we've blown them all in the past from an early age. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? And what we do, we people please as well, right? So we end up with the last bit of pie, which is crumbs on the plate right and we're kind of happy with that because we've got our drink in front of me and that's our reward isn't it oh, I all right i can have drink tonight and so nothing else matters about self-esteem self-worth but then the months and years of shame that you were talking about in your 30s till you got to 42 they erode you gradually don't they and you look in the mirror and you and you you say who the hell am i what have i turned into Exactly. It's that. It's, it's insidious. You don't, you, it's not, it's not a one big moment, one big explosion where you're like, Oh, I, this is a problem. I've got to stop. It's that it's just like, it, it, it just filters through. It's, it's so sneaky. Um, and exactly that it erodes so much of you. Like I didn't realize that I, you know, I'm 44 now. And I didn't realize the full impact of of my drinking, you know, when it comes to myself, when it comes to my self-care, my my self-esteem, just like there's so many areas now that I'm seeing, thank goodness, that it's impacting in a positive way. But I look back and that's why I said to you when I was thinking about my sort of journey um i i was looking back and i felt real i felt empathy for for emily you know that through those years and i just it's just it there is a sadness mm. um but it doesn't have to you know it doesn't have to stay that way and and i know that some people say oh i wish i'd have discovered all this magic earlier but for me, like, I'm just glad that I've got it at all. Like, mm. you know, I'm just, I'm just glad that I've got it. Um, but the thing is, is that, and I know that people have their own opinions about the word alcoholic and alcoholism, but there's this phrase, they, they, it's called alcoholism, not alcoholism. <laughs> and it's so true. It's like that, that, you know, that kind of the, low self-worth not having boundaries all that learned behavior from my I don't know childhood early life my my personal experiences that's all still there so if I don't do the work do the maintenance do the connections you know do what I'm learning to do on a daily basis all of that is kind of still there and that not might, might not be the case for everybody but i know that it that is the case for me um that my you know it's not really so much about me not picking up a drink anymore 
it's about my thinking now mm, and I, yeah completely about mindset yeah and um came for the drinking stayed for the thinking I'm here for the thinking and mm. you know it's you know life happens life is not rosy every day when you're sober it just isn't because it's life but it's learning how to to navigate that you know in the best kind of most healthy productive way that you can really and that's and that's a new skill for me because like you say from the age of 15 well since I picked up a drink I didn't learn any of that I'm learning how to be a fully functioning adult you know yeah so do you identify yourself as an alcoholic? Good question, Dave. <laughs> to be fair, I do. I do. I go to AA. I go to meetings. You know, I say, hi, my name's Emily. I'm an alcoholic. To be quite honest, that was one of the main things that I struggled with in that first year was that word, the word, the stigma, you know, my my attachment I had to that word you know and now I've realized that it is a word I don't it doesn't affect me it doesn't bother me um all I know is that the support that I have received through going to Alcoholics Anonymous has and continues to change my life to be honest I also, you know, I identify as someone that was alcohol dependent. I identify as an addict, an addict of spending money and, you know, sex love addicts. Like we're all addicts on some level. Well, it's just an interesting observation, right? Because I feel uncomfortable with that, right? Because I want to leave it behind. And I remember in the beginning, I went to AA and I went to that. I think five or six meetings in Clapham and people were there every week, two, three times a week or more making that statement. And I just felt like if I keep telling myself that, that's going to keep me in this. I need to move away. And this is an individual thing. We all do it differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like now if someone said to me, oh, why don't you drink? And I said, because I'm an alcoholic, it would it would feel like it would bring me straight back to, to that time in my life where I feel the way I do it, I've just left it behind. And it's a period of my life that I got addicted to a highly addictive drug that is everywhere you look and marketed in a way that we're meant to get addicted to it if we're genetically disposed to it i suppose you know i've i've always said on here that i've got a faulty dopamine receptor i'm very low in serotonin levels vitamin d b12 which are all like guides me towards being an addict anyway because i'm searching for a dopamine hits right and it for me it i i want to leave it in the past but I know there are certain people and I respect them for that, that when they identify as an alcoholic, that helps them. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. I, t I totally do. And it's interesting because it's like, I find that a little bit around the word sober. <laughs> I, you know, like sober is used so much. Yeah. I'm like, oh, now I'm identifying as a sober person, which ultimately means that I was a big drinker. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, for me, I just, 
I let go of what the words mean. Yeah. Personally, it, you know, like I said to you, it was my route in. And what I've learned and I'm starting to see is that through people that are on their own sort of discovery, not through the doors of AA, are basically all doing the same stuff. We're all doing the same stuff. It's about, it's just dressed up in a different coat. It's about acceptance. It's about, you know, surrendering ultimately. Um, it's about maybe having a look at old behaviors or some deeply ingrained resentments that you want to maybe let go of. It's about, you know, looking back, healing past from the wound, but it's also about a design for living. It's about moving forward. How, what are the tools I need to live a good life? And also a massive part of it is it, it's about, they say, carrying the message about helping others, mm. about getting yourself out there, sharing your story so that maybe, you know, someone can resonate with some part of it. That's ultimately what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I always say, like, what you, how you found it in the beginning is like, don't compare yourself to others, right? Because I've heard it many, many times when you go to these meetings, whether it's AA or online forums or whatnot, and some saying, yeah, you know what? I'm really struggling because I, I drink a bottle a night. And you're like, what? God, bloody hell. I drink free. So maybe, you know, yeah. you know, it's that kind of thing. And, and every single relationship, with alcohol is bespoke to you, you know, and I've said it before on air that, you know, depending on your background, your relationship status, whether you're a parent, what Mm -hmm. job you've got, whether you're highly sensitive, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different attributes that you have will Mm -hmm. present your relationship you have with alcohol and you have to find your way, whatever that is. And your way is hybrid in a way, isn't it? Because you're in my private group and you go to AA and exactly exactly that and that was the difference between the first time round and the second time round is that because I was just using AA I I felt like I was boxed in to this Mm. alcoholic box and Mm. I'm like hold on a minute we've all got the same things going on here we're all trying to do the same thing it doesn't really matter which road I chose to start going down um and that's why I was like actually why can't I have a bit of everything? Why can't I be in the sober community? You know, like, ultimately, we're all just trying to do the next right thing. And that's what I love about the whole so- sober world is there is no right or wrong. Ultimately, it's about not picking up a drink. At yeah, the yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, and, and that's the truth. And about educating yourself, you know, Um the emotional sobriety stint is like be prepared for that and think, right, this is where I need to start getting involved in some self-development here, exactly. you know, and there's loads of things out there. So for people listening to this podcast, um, what advice would you give to people? Because, you know, it's, I'm going to say the word journey, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it is one though. And there, there were people that sit on the fence for years and years and years, like you did in your thirties. And I did, you know, I've often said that I, I don't remember my forties and that's a regret of mine is that why couldn't I have seen it before? But I wasn't ready then. I look at serendipity. I look at timing, um, where I was in my life as well. 
Yeah. And it's all mapped out anyway. That's what I believe. And um, what would you say to people that are on the fence with whether what to do? Well, I think it's a hard one. If you're on the fence, then, you know, I think you know when you're ready. I think you know when you want, when you know that alcohol is not serving you in any positive way. Um, but I think if you're on the fence, then then why not try it? You know, try it and see what it unearths, really. Aside from all the obvious things like having clarity, not having hangovers, feeling better, you know, feeling more energized, being able to do more, being more motivated. Um, it also, it's just like, it just gives you an opportunity to almost take a little sabbatical from, from you. You know, if that's been your normal for so long, why not, like I said, kind of reframe it, gift yourself, gift yourself as, even a block of time and see you know, see what the changes might be. And what I would say in that is don't sit there and just stop drinking because that will be hell. And you will go, why am I doing this? This is horrific. I'm, you know, nothing's changed apart from the fact that I'm miserable because I've got no outlet and I've got no release. So within that time, absolutely connect. That is my biggest piece. Is, and that is one of the greatest out of all the many, one of the greatest gifts of this is connecting with people. And now, thank God, because of people like you, there are so many ways that we can connect. And I didn't ever realize it. In my drinking time, I was so alone, Dave. I literally would be sitting on the end of my bed with a glass of red wine and I'd feel so utterly alone. And what sobriety has given me is I don't feel alone anymore. Mm. It is so lovely. Mm. And, you know, so connect in any way that you can or you want. There's so much going on. Um, and also, once you do that, you do start to hear and see people's progress. And it does give you a little glimmer of like, oh, maybe I could do that. You know, and mm. you start to build those little bricks of your self-worth and your self-esteem. And the more days that you get, you know, the bigger you start to feel and the more capable and ready for life you start to feel. It's literally the, the biggest gift you could give yourself. Mm. Uh, I mean, and that's, you know, my personal experience. It's changed my life. Yeah, um, it's fascinating how you frame that because when you said about being alone, um, a lot of us feel like that. And mm. I was a solitary drinker mm. towards the end. Well, I was for a long time, really. You know, when I was in my little cottage, when I was like drinking litres of vodka, um, I didn't want to talk to anyone ever, not even on text, because it would worry me that they would ring mm. me if I'm texting, you know. Yeah. So I was really lonely when I was drinking. And this is what I say about it stripping everything from you there's a great animation called nuggets on um, youtube um and and if you google nuggets addiction um it will come up and it's of the bird that walks along the line and there's the golden nuggets which is the drug and the mm -hmm. first one it just steps over because it doesn't know what it is the second one it takes a sip and it's like the red bull and uh, thing where it gives you wings and it flies up the longer uh, along the path it goes 
the more it gets darker and darker. And in the end, it's just a black picture and falls over. And, mm. and it's so powerful. And that's what, how addiction grabbed me was that I was a vibrant young bloke, good looking lad, fit, loads of sport, loads of mates, girlfriends, whatever. And I ended up a 20 stone man in my house on my own, sitting behind the sofa with the lights off drinking, mm. you know, and it strips you. So why would you want to go into sobriety just as lonely? Exactly. This is the point. And Johan Hari, um, who wrote Stolen Focus, he said in his TED Talk, addiction is the opposite of connection or connection is the opposite of addiction, whatever way around you want it, right? And it, And it's like crossing the bridge from the drinking world to the sober world. Enjoy the journey. But... Mm. You can meet so many incredible people, um, but it's breaking the mold, isn't it, Emily? It's breaking that mold because we're all stuck in this routine coming up to Christmas now. You know, the office parties start around middle of November. Everyone's getting excited. By New Year, everyone's absolutely sick and death of it all. And this is why I, I do campaigns in November and December say it doesn't have to be like this. We can all rewrite our future, right? It doesn't have to be that kind of Christmas, you know. You can change it now. Completely. In fact, both times that I chose to get sober was like, well, the 13th of December. Yeah. And, you know, like early December because I was like, I don't want another one like that. I know what that's going to be like. I've had 30 years of drunk Christmases. I literally had 30 years of being so drunk on Christmas Eve that I crawled through Christmas Day. So it's it's about how you look at it, isn't it? And it is like that little reframe. It's like, well, hold on a minute. I've indulged in that. I've had 30 years of, of really, really boozy Christmases. Why don't I try a sober one and see how that one feels, you know? And it's a game changer. It's such a game changer. It's, I mean, obviously I've got kids and it's just, you know, and I was never a Christmas person and I'm still not, but I, you know, but I enjoy it so much more. I mean, it's just immeasurable how different it is, you know. It is. It is waking up Christmas morning fresh. Oh. But the quality time you have with your kids and not falling asleep in the afternoon or cutting your finger with your carving a turkey drunk and And also I, I always make a point now of of doing something with the kids on New Year's Day in the morning. Like because obviously that was not an option. Like the first of January, I haven't seen the first of January for thirty years. Yeah. And now I'm sober, I'm like, Oh, I've got another day to enjoy. And like what a way to kick off the year. Yeah. And I realise now that there's so much you can do on New Year's Day that's like there's loads going on. Um, so it's little things like that that are actually massive. They're, yeah. You know, and massive. there's the other bonus as well. If you start in December, you've got a month until dry Jan and then you've got all that support. And before you know it, you're a couple of months sober heading into the fresh year thinking, yeah. right, spring will be here soon. I feel really motivated to carry on. I'm looking better, feeling better. My relationships mm. are better. Um, mm. I can look in the mirror now and actually feel okay about what's looking back at me the real you do you know what I mean it's about finding yeah. your authentic self isn't it 
absolutely. And I spoke to a friend last night and she, she it was lovely how she described winter. She, she was like, I love winter because I think of it as like a real healing time. Yeah. Like it's a real opportunity. These kind of dark months are a real opportunity to do that work, to do the self-development and grow yeah. a little bit. And then you kind of really blossom. Blossom in the in spring. The spring. Yeah, that's a lovely way of putting it, actually. Hunker down. Yeah get the blankets out and light the <laughs> candles and this is my time to reflect and and heal. Yeah. You exactly. know, and, and go into the spring with a fresh attitude is lovely. I love the way you frame things, Emily. And what what's um, ahead for you now you're 10 months sober? Well, I am, I'm currently doing a, a course, a coaching course, which I am loving um, because, again, it's obviously it's that that piece about me i'm really pushing myself i wrote an essay last week for the first time in 30 years and i'm really proud of myself for that (laughs) yeah I'm, i'm proud of that um but i'm loving it because i'm i'm learning again about that kind of mindset about the um growth mindset which for me is really helping me as well you know um and it's that thing of of my confidence has grown. So I feel like, do you know what? I can try something different. I can do something different. And all that inner critic and, and all that noise that was so loud in my head for so many years, the volume's being turned down on a daily basis. It's going down. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes it rears its head, but then I'll pick up the phone or I'll get online and connect, you know, um, but yeah, just all of it seeping through my life. So now I kind of, I have that little bit of confidence or faith that it's going to be all right and have a go. And yeah. that comes down to me putting down the booze because for me, I thought that was never, ever an option. I thought that was, an, and everyone around me thought there's no way that Emily is going to stop drinking. And I've done it. So if I can do that, you can do I anything. Can do anything. Exactly. Two this year. Oh my god, I'm not ready for a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you up a mountain. Don't worry about that. It'll be the next thing in the group. <laughs> Emily, it's been an absolute joy having you on today. I'm so grateful for you joining me, and thank you for being so articulate around everything as well. Pleasure, pleasure. And I just, again, I want to say thank you to you because you are part of my story. And um, uh, along with many other people all the way along the road. And and I couldn't or wouldn't want to do it without the support and the company and the network of people. It's just, it's brilliant. So, um, yes, thank you. So important. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Have a great day and I hope to see you soon. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.